You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning or good afternoon. Now it's time here on America's Web Radio for Remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And we have a little bit of a change now with uh, what we're going to be doing. And uh, we'll bring in our guest right now. Uh, he's been on before as a veteran, and he's a veteran of Desert Storm and Desert Shield. So it makes sense that he knows what he's talking about. Philip Forsberg. And Philip has been on several times before, and we're going to be talking about remembering those two events and uh, what caused them and what has transpired since. But, uh, you know, it's... At America's Web Radio, we feel like all veterans are important. And I found out oh, several months ago that, incredibly, people had already forgotten Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And you'd do the man-on-the-street type thing, and you'd get the uh, deer in the headlight. And so that's why America's Web Radio started the show to begin with, is that we can't let any of our veterans under any circumstance be forgotten so phil welcome back to america's web radio it hadn't been but a couple of weeks but we're always glad to have you and uh, i think we uh, we've got a thing going here that you're going to be uh, representing desert shield and desert storm so welcome back to america's web radio thank you very much david i appreciate the opportunity well, you're, uh, you want to go just quickly and sort of give a very brief, uh, who is Philip Forsberg and, uh, your military activity, and then we'll get right into, uh, right into Desert Shield and Desert Storm. All right. I, uh, <clears throat> I was commissioned through, uh, Army ROTC in, uh, 1982, uh, and I, was uh, originally commissioned in the infantry and then uh, went to flight school and uh, became a pilot. I flew uh, Cobra gunships and uh, scouts, and uh, then I broke into fixed-wing flying for the military intelligence folks. And uh, after my first tour in uh, Central America, flying uh, missions down there, I... came back to the States to fly uh, the OB-1 Mohawk at Fort Hood, Texas. And uh, right after I checked out in the Mohawk, uh, we got our alert for uh, Desert Shield. Wow, so, that, uh, <laughs> that had to be that, sort of a shock, didn't it? Well, uh, yeah. I Actually, after having spent, um, you know, a year in a remote uh, assignment in Honduras, I... Uh, was kind of looking forward to a, a, a kind of kickback uh, stateside assignment, and that uh, was not to be. So most of my time in the States after I got back from Honduras was spent in training right up until the time we uh, deployed to go out to uh, Desert Shield, as it was called at the first. You know, I guess that's... Uh... <laughs> You're sort of like an EMT or a first responder in the fact that uh, 
Uh, you can be called up and get your duffel bag ready. You're moving out tomorrow, day after tomorrow, whenever they say. And uh, um, the military rules the roost when you're on active duty. Fair statement? Yeah. And, uh, you know, every once in a while you get a little wake-up call and you find out, you know, why they're paying you what they're paying you because they say, okay, go downrange and hurt people. You know, I guess, and and this is something that we've started doing, too, a whole lot of, and that's the fact that uh, it not only affects, obviously, the person that is wearing the uniform, but it's uh, it's all of the people behind you. Dad's here today, but he's gone tomorrow. Or it could be mom's here today, and she's gone tomorrow. And roles flip-flop, and kids have to adjust. And we, uh, at the station, we certainly support the families of all of our veterans and uh, our active duty folks i have uh, as you know i have a son that's active duty and so far his wife's been able to go with him to uh all of his bases so far but uh there will come a time i'm sure and well uh, you know i mean at, at the time i uh i had no no one but my wife in in my little nuclear family and uh and the army sent me to uh honduras for a year and then uh, off to Saudi Arabia for I didn't know how long wasn't really helping me build my family very well but <clears throat> my wife stuck through with it through uh, with through it with me and uh, yeah we're still together after 38 years that's fantastic congratulations um, Thank you. so what was your first impression going into uh, desert shield? And what was your anticipation? Maybe that'd be a better question. Well, um, you know, the immediate question that all the troops had was, are, are we going to a fight? And how long are we going for? I mean, you know, we, we had experienced things like return to forces in Germany, which was uh, a big exercise they called reforger. Um, you know, but you would, you'd have a, a schedule. You'd know what you're doing. And, you know, if we're just showing the flag or whatever, just, you know, I don't mind going. Just tell me when I'm coming home. <clears throat> Especially for me, I, you know, having freshly come from a, a short tour in, uh, without my family, I, I wanted to know, well, when can I get back to normal? Um, so <clears throat> that was really the overriding thought. At least in my mind, I, maybe I shouldn't speak for everybody, but I know I heard that question quite a bit from my soldiers. You know, when are we coming home? And all <laughs> I could tell them was what I had been told. Isn't that in that in the army where the uh, rumor factories start? <laughs> oh, there were plenty of them. Some of them were. Some of them turned out to be true, actually. But uh, yeah, there were plenty of rumors going around. Uh, but we, uh, you know, we didn't know if we were going to, to fight or, if we, you know, there were some people who were genuinely frightened at the idea. It kind of, it kind of, you know, does a little shakedown for you and lets you, lets you see, uh, you know, who's, who's really with it and, and who's just playing at the game. And, uh, we did have <clears throat> one soldier, uh, a sergeant, E5, at 
Saudi Arabia, he decided not to show up. And uh, he uh, just intentionally missed movement, which, uh, you know, that is a pretty serious uh, offense. And uh, he uh, <clears throat> he wound up getting brought, uh, arrested by the military police, sent to uh, uh, Saudi Arabia to under, basically under arrest in our company area and uh, by the time you know Desert Shield Desert Storm was all over we were all being hailed as heroes he was uh, basically I think he got seven years at Fort Leavenworth and he was still in Saudi Arabia when I left so mm. uh, turned out not to be a good decision on his part yeah I, I can't imagine doing something like that uh, or you know, going to Leavenworth or anything else. Uh, but so when and, there, and you know, there were also a lot of uh, reservists and guardsmen uh, who were called up, and you know, some of these guys, you know, just they acted completely shocked that they had been called. But you know, it was made pretty plain to everybody. Look, you know, you took the paycheck, uh, you know, for whether it's full time or just weekend drill. You know, this is what comes with it. And uh, it it really uh, got a lot of people's attention. I'll just say that. Oh, I, I, you know, as I've mentioned before, I was a reservist, and now I'm tagged a Vietnam veteran era. And uh, you know, I guess that's better than being tagged something else. But you know, yeah, and we wouldn't. Um, and I think you'd confirm this. People don't understand, or many people don't understand, how weak our military was, and that the and that the support came from Army Reserve and National Guard units. And uh, you know, we all raise our hand, and and when we're called, that's what we have to do. But yeah. at the same token, uh, yeah, most particularly during Vietnam. Uh, we didn't have uh, reserve units called up, and uh, we were walk- working off a new plan called the volunteer military. And um, then it was, uh, we were short in a lot of ways going into Desert Storm and Desert Shield. Yeah, uh, well, we had built up quite a bit uh, from... Uh you know, I, I give a lot of credit to Ronald Reagan. He had, you know, two, uh, two four-year terms uh, just prior to Desert Storm, Desert Shield, and uh, he, um, he he improved the armed forces quite a bit and gave us uh, some real um, resources. And we did, we did, in fact, rely quite a bit on on the Guard and Reserve at the time. I can recall um, they set up these uh, fueling stations, and you know, you drive down the road in your truck, and you need gas, and you pull over, and there'd be soldiers there, and they just fuel you up. <laughs> King of Saudi Arabia, you know, paid for all our gas. It was pretty nice, but uh, I remember this one fella who fueled me. And he was probably the oldest private I'd ever seen in my life. He was out of uh, I believe the uh, Mississippi Army National Guard, and uh, he had probably one of the best attitudes of anybody I ever saw in that whole theater. Hmm. Um, 
nice guy. But, uh, yeah, so, uh, and then I can recall sitting at a mess hall one day talking to uh, some folks, and they were guardsmen. They were out of uh, one of the Dakotas, and uh, I asked them, you know, what was their what was their military occupational specialty, and they told me it was, I think it was 77 whiskey, uh, and I said, well, what in the world is that? And he said, water purification. I said, really? He said, yeah. Hmm. And uh, they explained to me that they would take a, <clears throat> basically a hose, toss it in the Arabian Gulf, suck up salt water, run it through their machines. Pure water would come out. They'd put it in 50,000-gallon blivets on the back of a uh, flatbed uh, tractor trailer. And... Uh, that was it. I, and I got to tell you, you know, when I heard that, I was really amazed at the at the planning and the uh, the readiness that that went into that whole operation. It was it was really quite magnificent. Oh yeah, I I never heard of that, but that's uh, the only the only one I know. You know well is Eleven Bravo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or we call it sometimes Eleven Body Bag. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> Yeah, but the, um, the a lot of great planning, and, and you know, speaking of that water and the trucks and everything, you know, I would fly these missions, and uh, I could listen to uh, AM radio on my uh, ADF radio in the in the airplane. I would listen to uh, the Voice of Peace from Baghdad, hmm. which was kind of uh, Saddam's little uh, Baghdad Betty or. Uh, or uh, Tokyo Rose, or whatever, and uh, you know they kept saying, "Oh, you know, you Americans." This is before the hostilities broke out. He said, "You Americans are going to, you know, uh, melt in the desert, and you, you know, you won't be able to survive." And I'll tell you what, the guys who really, you know, are the sort of unsung heroes of that story was sort of like uh, Patton's Red Ball Express, the guys that drove those uh, trucks full of water out into the desert, they drive 400 miles, drop off their trailer, pick up another one, an empty one, and uh, drive 400 miles back. And they do that every day. 800 miles they drive. Wow. Um, and, it, you know, they, they just did a fantastic job. I think the world of those guys. You know, uh, you're you're opening a door that I've... I've really, and this, this is what this show's all about, really, and what the station's all about, too, is, is enlightening folks on what it's like to be there. And I was going to ask you a question, uh, when you were talking about going to a mess hall a minute ago. What was the chow like over there? Well, of course, you know, we had, within our organization, we had our organizational cooks. And, uh, so they had a little mess tent set up, but, uh, my outfit, we, you know, we were aviation and we were fixed wing, so we were sort of fixed on, on an airport. And uh, this airport was under construction. It was King Fahd International Airport in Dammam. And uh, the, uh, the king had a lot of uh, expatriate uh, laborers building the airport for him, and he had mess halls for them. And, you know, the king was a very generous to all the soldiers who were going to keep him from getting overrun by Saddam. <laughs> and so he just said, have your soldiers eat in our mess hall. And uh, so we would go take a little one of our trucks or something over there with a bunch of soldiers and 
go sign in at the mess hall. And um, the food wasn't too bad. Our cooks made us uh, breakfast usually. We only ate our, our suppers over at the at the mess hall. And then uh, we usually had MREs for, uh, for our midday meal, um, which, you know, could be any time for me because of the number of night missions I flew. Um, I would just stick some... MRE envelopes into my flight suit pocket, and off I go. And off you go. We're going to take one quick break right here and be back with Philip and uh, more of his stories about being in Desert Shield and Desert Storm. Folks, hang in there, and we'll be back shortly. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, I am Roger B., host of the Locked and Loaded Show on America's Web Radio. Join me live every Tuesday at 1500 for the best in gun news, gun products, and gun politics. And we're glad to have you listening to America's Web Radio today and our Desert Storm, Desert Chill, remembering them. And uh, one thing I want to add that uh, our our friend, yours and my friend, uh, Phil, Rick White, uh, had given me a call the other day and asked me if I would mind mentioning this a number of times, and we've been trying to do it as often as possible. And that is that uh, November 7th, it was the date scheduled for the induction ceremony ceremony of the uh, next class, the 2020 class of Military Veterans Hall of Fame, and it was to be in... Uh, Columbus, Georgia, November the 7th, and uh, due to the um, restrictions in Columbus, and uh, they still have things in effect, which many areas do regarding COVID-19, and so the uh, ceremony has been postponed indefinitely, and as soon as they have established a date, we'll certainly get that back out on the air, but want to remind everybody that we in Georgia are so fortunate to have such a a broad array of people supporting our veterans. We have the Johns Creek uh, wall that uh, they call the healing wall that is a replica of the Vietnam wall in Washington, D.C., and it's got a permanent home now in Johns Creek at Newtown Park. We've got perimeter um that has uh, another uh salute to the Vietnam veterans uh, uh perimeter memorial there and just the hall of fame is incredible and i'm not sure about uh going and visiting i know they're they're closed on the weekends but open during the week and it's in the floyd building right across the street from the state capitol and we'll keep you posted on what they're going to be doing and when they'll be doing it but it is fantastic. Uh, it's a, it's a great all day walkthrough and, uh, we just support Rick and what he's been doing. Rick White is just incredible. And, uh, Paul Longier has, has done a heck of a job. And what's the old saying, Phil? Uh, the greatest form of flattery is being copied and, yeah, uh, imitation. Imitation, yeah. 
and uh, the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame is being being imitated by many other organizations across the country and states taking up what Rick and uh, and Paul have done. So anyway, keep that in mind. And uh, now let's get back to Desert Storm and Desert Shield. And um, this was all part of the retaliation to Saddam invading Kuwait, correct? It's quite true. <clears throat> um the uh, one day, I think it was the second of August of uh, 1990. I uh, heard on the radio. I was listening to the news on the radio, and uh, they said that Saddam Hussein had invaded Kuwait. And uh, uh, well, I guess he thought he could just uh, take over this uh, rather uh, wealthy neighbor of his, and he made up some uh, story about how this was rightfully one of the provinces of his country. Uh, well, <clears throat> he, uh, we, we basically told him, our, our president told him, you're, you're going to have to get out. Uh, they were very, they were very uh, brutal to the people of Kuwait. Uh, Saddam had, uh, I guess, given them instructions that, you know, take what you want. It was a little bit like... Uh, the rape of Nanjing, if you will. Uh, they just went in and uh, just uh, ran roughshod over the place, uh, killing children and, you know, old men and, you know, stealing everybody's uh, possessions. It was, uh, it was quite an outcry internationally against what was going on. And uh, at the time when I heard about it, I I had no idea that I'd be part of the solution, but uh, eventually, uh, yeah, I wound up going over there and helping uh, drive Saddam out of there. Well, you know, all during that war, and I'd already, (laughs) I was already gone from the guard and stuff, but uh, in, in watching Hussein and then, you know, and then we got our clips of Storm and Norman, but Saddam, you know, the guy had to be nuts uh, to think he could get away with it, and he was not in any shape, form, or fashion other than wearing a uniform, a military person, in my opinion. Um, bad decisions up and down the gambit, and uh, he, he was and wouldn't listen to his his people like he should have and he didn't stand a snowball chance if you step back and look at it in my opinion and for him to go forward with it was just astronomically stupid and he got what he deserved well at the time our secretary of state i believe was a guy by the name of james baker and i can recall him uh giving his ultimatum to saddam and telling and saying very plainly that up until this point, Saddam had made a series of miscalculations, and he told him, essentially, any further miscalculations on his part were going to be extremely costly, and that proved to be the case. Well, he, was given, he was given quite a, an opportunity to leave. Uh, I was a little incredulous at the fact that uh, 
he allowed us to build up a force of about a half a million troops uh, right under his nose. And then uh, was it was very interesting because <clears throat> uh, there were all sorts of rumors that went on. Um, and uh, the uh, uh, we, we had said that the 15th of January was his uh, drop dead date. He had to be out of there or we'd start shooting. We actually didn't start until the 16th, I believe. Uh, and uh, the uh, suddenly, uh, so 18th Airborne Corps was far to the eastern part of, of Saudi Arabia. And then that some uh, there was some big signal and wham that whole 18th Corps, uh, three divisions suddenly disappeared and made this uh, end around out to the west and uh, uh, you know I mean the, the 101st Airborne Division with augmentation from other units put 100 Chinook helicopters in the air at one time they put. The entire division, the entire 101st, uh, 150 kilometers inside, uh, in behind the Iraqi lines. Wow! It was just amazing. Now, in your opinion, who would have been formulating this plan? Was it Schwarzkopf or his aides, or well, you know, it it was left. To General Schwarzkopf to uh, execute the plan, uh, which he did, and he was uh, he was quite a guy. Very, um, if you'll recall, kind of a bit larger than life sort of character. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, um, but you know, there the Pentagon is chock full of planners that do nothing but what if and. Uh, you know, these are the guys who come up with the idea that, you know, we should have water purification units and, you know, other things like that. But most people they have no concept of, uh, of just, you know, how they come up with all this stuff. But they just they just seem to. But it's not by accident. It's because very, very detailed plans have been made over a course of many uh, years. Except for sending green equipment into a sandy brown area. We painted all our trucks before we left, <laughs> um, so that that got hap- that got uh, taken care of. wasn't You know, we didn't have a great need for camouflage. I think Saddam's troops had more need for camouflage than we did. <laughs> On that note, I recall um, there was an incident of some uh, some fratricide when uh, the Air Force had uh, engaged targets that turned out to be um, friendly forces and uh, of course all the uh, detractors wanted to wanted you know some retribution or you know how how could this happen this is you know obviously the president didn't know what he was doing and same nonsense you hear these days and he uh, so they came up with this plan to uh, to paint this uh, inverted V on our vehicles. Uh, it was just a, like a black V on our sand-colored vehicles. Mm-hmm. Uh, inverted, you know, with the, with the point up instead of down. And uh, the, the word came down one day, you know, everybody paint this on your vehicles. 
in the Pentagon. He was briefing everybody, and we got to watch this on CNN. And uh, they asked him what was being done to uh, to uh, prevent fratricide. And he said, well, we have a scheme that we're painting our vehicles. And they pushed him on that. And he said, you know, for operational reasons, I know I'm going to tell you what that is. And then uh, one of the reporters said, uh, does this involve some sort of uh, high-tech uh, uh, paint that can only be seen by certain, uh, you know, optical devices? <laughs> and, uh, you know, the general said, I'm not going to talk about it. And then another uh, reporter said, have we shared these optical devices with the uh, with our you know allied nations that are there fighting with us to you know and, and this this thing just got legs and, <laughs> and kept going and going then you know the general just looked at us I'm not going to talk about the paint you know all it was was a V inverted V paint I remember well yeah <laughs> you know and uh, they, I just remember watching this unfold it was really kind of funny seeing oh. how the, the press. You know, they they come up with something and they all, everybody run with it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a wonder somebody hadn't said no. We're putting uh, saddlebags on elephants, and yeah. uh, <laughs> they'll be sure. And and they would have the press would have gone with that too. Of course, <laughs> and yeah. Like well, uh, but you know, there were a lot a lot of preparations that went into that. Um, a lot of a lot of very detailed plans. And, uh, you know, people, are, I'm very, very grateful for the people who, who do that kind of planning. Uh, I know probably many of them come up with plans that never see the light of day. And, you know, that's just fine if we don't have to use them. But <clears throat> I, I guess one, I guess one thing too, Phil, is that there was a very short period of time for him to come up with this. And it's an amazing story, really. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, we had found out that the uh, the Iraqis were absolutely terrified of the idea that the Marines were going to do an amphibious landing in Kuwait City. And, uh, of course, that was not the plan. The plan was for them to drive up, you know, on the eastern border uh, and take that sector. But we found out that the Iraqis were putting all their... Uh, you know, digging in defenses on the on the beaches, uh, you know, facing the Gulf, and so they they had kind of oriented all their forces there. So we let them think that, and uh, it, and then I think we sent in two SEAL teams, maybe that uh, simulated a uh, you know a Marine amphibious assault there on the on the beaches and. Meanwhile, you know, the Marines were coming up, driving right up the sand the way the rest of us were, and uh, made a, made the job quite a bit easier. Um, I do recall, uh, you know, thinking back to the time when we were getting ready to go, we didn't know if we were going to be fighting or just, you know, what, what exactly we would be doing over there. Um, uh, we were down at the rail yard loading up, uh, our, uh, 
our equipment to go. And uh, one of the uh, oh, one of the folks at the rail yard I ran into was the uh, assistant division commander of the first cavalry division. He was the assistant division commander for support, and uh, he had about four rail cars that were just completely full to the brim. And I asked him, "Hey, General, you know what? What's in these cars?" And he said, uh, "Hellfire missiles." <laughs> and uh, I, I, <clears throat> I said, it's, uh, <clears throat> that's an awful lot of firepower right there. And he said, well, yep. And so at that point, I was pretty sure we were going to go um, hurt some folks. Uh, but I didn't, you know, didn't have any firsthand knowledge of what the plan would be. Then another revelation I had when we went down to the to the port. And they were unloading equipment, and uh, so we kind of watched them unload our equipment. And uh, right next to us was uh, the engineers for, I believe, the first cab division, and they uh, they were unloading bridging equipment. Hmm. And I thought that was very interesting, in as much as there are no rivers in Saudi Arabia. Um, so it kind of gave me an indication of how far we might be going. You know, you're telling, obviously telling me stuff that I didn't know and nor did I have any reason to know, but at the same token, you, you struck the point of, of there's no greater country in the world than the United States of America and its support of, and supported by our incredible military and I marvel at the folks like my son that's dedicated and is dedicating his whole life to uh, the Air Force and to the United States of America to protect all of us. And that's why we do is num- a number of different shows about uh, veterans and what they did and what they are doing since they came back or went or whatever the situation might be. And... Um, the stories that you're telling right now, Phil, are just incredible. And, uh, you know, can't, I, I'm sitting here thinking about you, the individual that packed your duffel bag to go. And then I'm thinking about your company, your brigade, whatever, and all of the equipment that had to be packed up to go. And in a record amount of time, it, it was just beyond belief how fast we got there. In my we, opinion. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, it was a lot of work, uh, but we got it done. We we got our orders, and we did what we were told. And that's, that's what our military is all about. And I don't think there's a military – I don't think there's a nation that has a military like ours. And it's, it's – I've told this story, and, and – uh, General Dix that was there when you were there. He, he was called back up to, uh, serve during the pandemic and that's what he's still doing. Now, let me ask. I don't, you and I never have talked age exactly, but I, I can say for a fact, 
and I've said it before, and I'll probably get in trouble. There's one one person that listens to the show that says I talk way too much, and if I do, well, I'm sorry, but there are other channels. <laughs> anyway, uh, is the fact that with all the interviews that I've done, I can honestly say there's not a person that I've interviewed, including myself, that if the president called or somebody called, we'd all raise our hands and go right back in. I'd I'd probably be in charge of pushing the uh, walkers or something, but uh, you know, I, that's that's what a veteran is all about. Would you agree? I, I agree. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I think about the guys and the gals we have out there today uh, protecting us and just the selfless service. And, uh, and you know, you, you can't pay somebody enough to do that. They, it really has to come from a love of country. There is, there is a limit, you know. They're not going to do it for free. They need to, you know, they need to have lives, too. You know, it's something special to be willing to put your life on the line. It's all you got um, to to defend our nation. And uh, you know, it, uh, what can I say? I'm honored to have been there. I'm honored by the service uh, of the folks I saw around me doing fantastic things. Um, and just you know, like that guy fueling vehicles on the side of the road. Um, you know, he was a 50-year-old private from Mississippi Guard, but this guy, just, you know, just happy to serve. And uh, what a what a great, ins- he was, he was great inspiration for me while I was there. You know, I obviously don't know that gentleman, but I would lay you dollars to donuts if you ask him, what did you do in Desert Shield? Desert- oh, shucks, I wasn't anything, I just... I just filled up, uh, I was a, a gasoline station and, uh, and yet he doesn't realize how vital a, a position that was really. He may have only been a private, but somebody had to be out there doing it and he made you keep rolling and gave you the fuel to keep rolling. So my, I salute him as much as I do the, the general that was sitting at his desk making decisions for all of us or all of you all. But, uh, every, you know, this is a great thing about our military. Everybody's important in it. You know? Yeah. Well, you know, years ago, I don't know why they came up with some recruiting slogan for the army called army of one. And, uh, I remember thinking at the time that, that really, displays kind of a misunderstanding of what an army is because an army it's like a team it's all people working together at whatever job they've been trained for with with kind of singleness of mind but uh you know an army isn't one an army is it, it may be one team and it may have one fight but it's uh it's composed of individuals and uh you know, one of the things that makes our country so wonderful is, you know, people have freedom to live in the way they choose. And, uh, you know, the folks who serve in uniform, they kind of set that aside for a little bit. You know, they 
They march in the people's army and they drive the people's truck and they fly the people's airplane and they get treated by the people's doctor and they uh, eat the people's food. But, you know, when it's all done, when they fold up the flag and hang up their dog tags, uh, they get to enjoy the fruits of our of our nation. And, uh, and you know, and part of that, uh, leads into my, one thing that I'd like to plug, if I may, David, and that is uh, the veteran service organizations that can take care of veterans who've served, who uh, may have uh, disabilities. As I've said before, I'm a volunteer service officer with the Disabled American Veterans, but there's American Legion, and there's VFW, and there's uh, any number of other organizations, and they all have service officers, and they're there. If there are veterans listening that are looking for benefits, uh, you know, or having a hard time getting the benefits that they've earned from the VA, they need to talk, call call your local chapter of the DAV and ask to speak to a service officer. And uh, they don't charge a nickel for what they do, and uh, they'll just help these guys. And uh, some, you know, some of the guys that are most deserving are the least likely to ask for help. And... Uh, and I explained to him, this is uh, this is not charity. This is something that our nation has promised you and you've earned, and it's part of the law. And because the VA is a very difficult bureaucracy, there are outfits like the DAV to help veterans get uh, what they've earned. And I tell them, don't don't ever feel uh, like you're taking a handout for this. This is something that you've earned. That's beautiful, Phil. You know, it's, um, and I, I know how hard you work at that and work with the DAV. And I, we just, we can't, for, we can't ever forget our veterans as a country or as an individual. And, you know, we say this many times that if you see someone in uniform or, if they happen to be wearing, uh, I served in so-and-so boat or ship or whatever, or with this unit or that unit in Vietnam or whatever, you're gonna, you'll be amazed at how good you'll feel when you buy them a dinner, a lunch, a drink, whatever it might be. You will feel a whole lot better for it than they do. They will appreciate it and there's not a vet that I know of our first responder for that matter, that the two words, thank you, go so far. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, you know, you just can't put a limit on thanking somebody for their service. And you may not have served or you may not, your family may not have served, but the sacrifice that our veterans have given our country is just, they can't be thanked enough. And this is, uh, you know... Being a part of the largest fraternity and or sorority in the world is the greatest thing that a man can do. And John 1513 sums it all up. And uh, it's just, you know, everybody should be on their knees thanking God for being born and raised in the United States of America. And... I'm not going to preach on this by any means, but we have a very important election coming up. And 
you have right you have every right to vote any way you want to vote and we have our opinions but the important thing is that you live in a democratic republic that lets you vote and express your opinion so don't give up that privilege go out and vote and uh you know Phil, it, it's it's a pleasure having you on. What was your coming back to the states like? If you can do it in a few minutes. <laughs> well, that that's a uh, you know uh, there there were a whole series of events, and we we were told, oh, you know, you're going to come back, you're going to be a hero, everybody's going to buy you beers as soon as you touch ground somewhere, and. Um, it's not really what I experienced. They gave me uh, 50 soldiers from uh, from my unit to bring back and 49 uh, from the 2nd Armored Division to come with me. Uh, and I was sort of in charge of these 100 soldiers, including myself. And uh, we... Uh, it took us over 36 hours of flying in the extreme luxury of a... Uh, <laughs> C one forty one B Star Lifter, which is almost as loud on the outside as it is on the inside in flight. And those wonderful and, uh, lounge chairs that you got to use. Well, they they were called they called them comfort pallets, but <laughs> it was just some basic cheap uh, seats that had been bolted to the floor. Um, and uh, first stop we had was in uh, was in England. Of course, it was Easter Sunday morning in 1991, and uh, we didn't have any immigration paperwork or customs paperwork for England, so they just locked us in a this little airline holding terminal with uh, some cartoons, bad English cartoons on the TV, and there were some vending machines. If we happened to have English money, we could uh, put in there, which, of course, we didn't have. And uh, then they put us on, they took us to McGuire Air Force Base, and now it was Easter Sunday afternoon in New Jersey, and, uh, you know, there was nobody there uh, to meet us. And they finally, after about an hour before we left, they opened the snack bar, and uh, some guys could get burgers or whatever, but then uh, they flew us to uh, Robert Gray Army Airfield at good old Fort Hood, Texas, and... Uh, it was it was just a whirlwind of activity. Very uh, uh, nobody told us that there was going to be some sort of uh, ceremony for us when we got there, and uh, they led me down this thing at the head of all these soldiers going in. There we had to go into the, um, the little passenger terminal they had there and surrender our weapons and our protective masks, night vision goggles, and other stuff that we'd kept with us for six months and um, and then uh, they put us on these buses and uh, our hangar for our unit was just at the end of the of the runway down the taxiway from where the passenger terminal was and so we got on these buses and now we're feeling sort of lighter than air because now we don't have uh, all these uh, encumbrances that we've you know not been separated from in uh quite some time and uh, and then uh, as we headed down the, the taxiway to our hangar where our families had decorated it the uh, 
They had an MP uh, military police car escort. They turned the siren on as as we headed down the taxiway, and it was the same exact siren that we used when we had incoming scuds <laughs> at uh, King Fod Airport. And so, of course, the first thing you do when there's an incoming scud, you put your protective mask on, and then you run for your bunker. Well, we didn't have our masks at this point, <laughs> so you saw all these soldiers reaching for their masks. They're, you know, like Pavlov's dogs, and uh, they basically created a panic in us for, you know, a few moments there. And then we got to be reunited with our families. But uh, it was uh, it was dramatic. Uh, but I, you know, I just, I just wanted to go home. That's all. Sure. And that's, uh, you know, that's, uh, I think that's the story of everybody that's been deployed is I just want to go home. And, uh, we, uh, the folks that we've had on that have been injured and so forth and have given, not the, obviously not the ultimate sacrifice, but have given so much to this country that, and we owe them so much, and we owe them, in my opinion, we owe them the best. Um, a lot of folks can't imagine that the sacrifices that our veterans over the years have given, and then what it's done to their families when they've come home, and it's uh, we just we can't let our veterans down whether it's a tunnel to towers or whatever other organization that supports the the vet um the flag i can't remember the flag uh uh deal that they do that that gives homes and gives education to uh kia families pardon me folds of honor yes i'm sorry i couldn't remember that I have, I have, uh, what's called old age in my head. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, it, it just, we have to take care of our veterans and their families. And well, donate, well, please. I agree. I can recall, uh, it was about 2008. I was on my last tour of the Pentagon and, uh, uh, I had some, friends of the family who had uh, come from uh, Sweden and uh, was their first time to the U.S. They spoke English, but anyway, I went to meet them in the lobby of the place where they were staying and take them to my house, and uh, when I met them there, uh, I I was in my uniform, and uh, a fellow came up to me in the lobby and he shook my hand and he thanked me for my service. Now, in 2008, we were still pretty hotly involved in both Iraq and Afghanistan. And, uh, you know, I, I told him, you know, he was welcome and I thanked him for paying his taxes that pay my paycheck. And, uh, when he, he left, my, my friend from Sweden turned to me and she said, uh, she, she was very surprised by that. She said, the, does that happen often in the U.S.? I said, yeah, actually it happens all the time. And it uh, didn't really register with me um, until sometime later why that would be so strange to someone. And uh, I guess what I think about it is, you know, it's 
Sweden, like all the other countries in Europe, they had they had kings, and the armies belonged to the kings. And uh, if you you know, if the king wanted you in his army, you were in his army. And um, sometimes the king used uh, his army to subdue the people. And it's uh, very very different here in our country. Uh, our army actually created our country. And so, uh, and then step back to be the servant of the civil government. And I think it's quite unique in human history. It's remarkable and it's wonderful. That's a beautiful analogy and you're so dead on. And I just cringe at some of the things that are going on today because our teachers haven't been able to teach history, just like you said uh, just now. I mean, some of the people that are causing problems, I just like to sit down in a chair, gag them, time to the chair, and let you tell them what you just told us, you know, and how important our government is and that it's our, – our government is not just – for you and it's not just for me it's for all of us and everyone that puts on a uniform isn't fighting just for you or just for me they're fighting for our country from you know top to bottom and everybody plays a part and i it just it i get really upset when i there's one term that i just I go ballistic over, and if that some if somebody tells me they're going to rewrite history, get out of my way. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, you know, and in, in my professional military education, I spent an awful lot of time um, learning, studying uh, military history because it's uh, it's very valuable in terms of helping you understand not only how wars are won, but also why they're fought. And uh, so, yeah, you know, history is an important thing. My dad was a history teacher. Uh-huh. Well, then you know. And it, it's, yeah. you know, and I think probably the movies after World War Two sort of, sort of, glamorized uh, war but there ain't nothing glamorous about war and uh, Vietnam taught us lessons about what mankind can do to mankind and certainly Desert Shield and Desert Storm backed all that up and it's incredible what man can do to man and yet we've been very blessed to be superior and we remain, uh, the United States probably remains the one and the foremost country that fights with honor. Is that a fair way to say it? Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, we don't, we don't, we don't fight for conquest. Um, you know, we don't, we don't fight to take what somebody else has. Um, I think Colin Powell probably said it as well as anybody. The only thing we've ever asked for in our victory is a place to bury our dead. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, my dad was not only a history teacher, but he was also a veteran of World War II. And, uh, he taught me a lot, and uh, I'll tell you one thing he never did was glamorize war for me. Um, sure not. There's, uh, like I said, there's nothing glamorous about it. But uh, and and I quite honestly feel that this is my opinion, but that everyone should serve our country, if not carrying a weapon at least doing something to say thank you back to the greatest country in the world. Well, yeah. Uh, I, I've heard that sentiment quite a bit. I don't uh, I don't know. Uh, I saw plenty of folks that were in uniform that I think really should be in uniform, so I won't say everybody. Well, the... Uh when I was of age, uh, and I have certainly changed my tune on this, and that's the the, the ones that uh, would not fight, the uh, conscientious objectors, and yet so many of them turned out to be heroes doing things that I can't imagine uh, as conscientious objectors. And th- during Vietnam, this I don't, I can't address. Uh, Desert Shield and Desert Storm, but certainly during Vietnam. And uh, they became medics, and the lives that they saved were just, you know, untold lives. Uh, You know, so many, so many. But anyway, uh, that's that's for our Vietnam veterans to talk about. And I'm sure you had some in uh, Desert Shield and Desert Storm as well. Well, yeah, we we had some that were had fought in Vietnam that were there with us in Desert Storm. There were others, many others, who uh, had trained me and, uh, you know, showed us just what to do. We were definitely standing on the shoulders of giants when we were there. Um, I like to think that, you know, maybe I helped train some of the folks who are out there today doing such a fantastic job. Um, But, you know, for the United States Army, it's an unbroken line from uh, from April of 1775 all the way until uh, today. Um, what you learn gets handed down to you from those who came before. Right. Phil, thank you so much for today, and uh, we look forward to working with you in the future and keeping... Desert Shield and Desert Storm in the memories of all of us and how important it is to remember the vets. So thank you again, sir, and uh, we will be talking to you soon. My pleasure, David. Thank you. Yes, sir. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.